Mr. Cobb, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. My pleasure to be with you, Dimitri. Thanks for having me. Want to talk about your career a bit. Your career took the path that many lawyers' careers take. You were a prosecutor first, went into private practice. At some point uh, into your career in private practice, you joined the Trump administration in connection with the Mueller investigation, right? How'd that happen? Uh, well, I've had a couple of other um, uh, interruptions to my private practice. I was a uh, independent counsel um, I was senior trial counsel to the independent counsel in the HUD investigation, and public service was something that had always appealed to me. Um, I have to say, I didn't look for the Trump um, assignment. I was asked to take it. Uh, it was a difficult decision because um, I was politically not a supporter, but at the same time, uh, I was concerned uh, based on what I'd been told by people I trusted who were closer to the facts than me. Um, that um, uh, there were some significant issues here uh, in connection with the Russian investigation that uh, appeared to uh, suggest that uh, it was not what it was purported to be by the New York Times and the Washington Post, and that somebody had to had to navigate that course with Bob Mueller. Bob Mueller, somebody I had known and respected for since 1983, um, and. When we were both prosecutors, uh, him in Massachusetts and me in uh, and me in Maryland, um, so I uh, thought long and hard and uh, stepped down from my partnership at uh, Hogan um, and uh, became a uh, full-time government employee again after 30 years. Now you had noted that the investigation was not a witch hunt in your view, but should have moved faster. Why? Well, so. So what we know is the origins of it actually, you know, justify the witch hunt, um, justify in some quarters anyway, the witch hunt characterization. Um, you know, as uh, as the CIA director told uh, the President Obama and others in the Oval Office in July of uh, 2015 or 16, I'm sorry, um, the, they had information that Hillary had started a false flag uh, operation and had paid lawyers and others to uh, promote it. And that information uh, got as far as Peter Stroke and uh, died in the died in the files of the FBI. Uh, that never made it into any FISA applications. Um, other things in FISA applications, um, you know, were as Mike Horowitz, who I respect greatly. Uh, as well, who is as liberal as the day is long, <laughs> uh, but is as honest as the day is long as well, uh, candidly came out uh, in his findings with regard to Stroke and McCabe and others um, that, uh, you know, the FISA process had been deeply corrupted and uh, referred uh, you know, McCabe and Stroke and others uh, for criminal prosecution. Um, once, once I dug into the facts at the White House, which took a while, uh, frankly, uh, it became pretty clear to me that, you know, cooperation was better than uh, fighting tooth and nail and having a bunch of drawn out court proceedings, um, all of which would have eviscerated executive privilege. Um, as it turned out, uh, the way we managed it by cooperating, um, you know, never had a subpoena, never had a, you know, court fight, never really had a, actually never really had a stern conversation. Uh, with the uh, principal people that I was dealing with. 
we were able to get to the end of the line. But, you know, we were at the end of the line factually in January of 2018. Uh, and it took them another 14 or 15 months before they um, agreed to tell the world that there was no there there um, on Russia. And I think that was unfortunate. I, I think it uh, I think it reflected the views of a couple of people on Mueller's team um, that, uh, you know, they wanted to uh, they, they were more interested in Trump than they were in the in the benefit of the United States. Um, but uh, they prevailed on that, but ultimately reached, you know, um, a conclusion that was required by the facts, which was there had been no active involvement by Trump or anybody in his administration. Uh, with any Russians um, in connection with the campaign. How do you look back at your time at the White House? So it's a very, I'm not much for looking back. So it's its an odd lens for me. Um, you know, as, as somebody who was not a big Trump supporter, uh, it was challenging every day because um, I was surrounded by a lot of people who were. And then I was, you know, then there were a lot of people who, like me, were there um, basically to try to serve their country and do the best job they could to you know, help the country through difficult times uh, as the divisiveness um, uh, between the parties and uh, the classes and the races and every, every place else, you know, began to uh, smolder. Um, you know, there were, there were those of us who were trying very hard to keep the press honest and to get the facts out and hope that uh, the country could survive that, uh, that exercise, just like what people are dealing with now. Um, you know, it's been a, it started then, but it's not over and it seems to get worse every day. Let's talk about some of these indictments. There is an idea by some that some or all of these indictments are political prosecutions, quote unquote. Nobody really knows what that phrase means, at least not fully. How dangerous is it that the country even operates under a perception, let's say, that some of these may be influenced by uh, politics, that prosecutorial discretion is impacted by politics? How bad does that look? So I think it's very serious for the country. Uh, and it's something that, you know, justice at all levels needs to be um, careful of. You know, I differ um, with most of what uh, the former Attorney General Bill Barr has said in terms of um, the decision to actually prosecute Trump. I think the way he managed the uh, the classified information case probably tipped the scales uh, in favor of prosecution in connection with both his cases because uh, he was so there was such flagrant disregard for the norms and such you know criminal activity ongoing to try to obstruct that case. Um, I think, uh, you know, uh, the former attorney general has described it as non-jurisprudential. I, I understand that criticism and, it, you know, there, there is that third world country line of, you know, cannibalizing your former leaders. But I think in this case, you know, what Trump did shook the country at its core and, you know, was a direct assault on multiple constitutional protections that have kept us a republic for, you know, 250 years. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm content, certainly with the, the Jack Smith prosecutions. Um, I think the Georgia case is a bit of an overreach, but certainly, you know, there is evidence there to prosecute 
certain crimes, whether it, you know, uh, is the broad RICO conspiracy between, you know, the hip hop world and Trump and, you know, everybody included in that indictment, I guess will remain to be seen. I, I do think that the case in New York, though, uh, sadly, uh, added fuel to the fire in terms of the political prosecution uh, arguments. I think that I think that's a very difficult case to justify, uh, particularly when the prosecutor ran on the promise that he would take on Trump. Um, I think, uh, you know, that's a dangerous intersection uh, for the country where where the potential for the abuse of the rule of law, um, you know, is is seen and real. Um, so I'm not surprised that Trump is making these arguments. Um, on the other hand, these are the types of arguments that he's made his whole life. He's a victim. Everybody else is out to get him. Um, you know, the, the checklist of narcissistic uh, objections to anything that uh, doesn't go his way. You know, when he was indicted in New York, right, there became an obvious argument, kind of one that you just laid out, that the prosecutor ran on a certain promise, right? The electorate that had put him into office comprised, at least in theory, the jury pool that will now preside over the trial. How problematic is that? It seems, at least, when you discuss it and lay it out the way I just did, it's a big deal. So I agree with you on that. Um, you know, I think the system will save us. Ultimately, in that case, I don't think the the uh, New York Court of Appeals, uh, Courts of Appeal, uh, and may perhaps ultimately the Supreme Court in that particular case, um, should it ever go forward, and it's certainly not going to go forward uh, before the election. Uh, so if Trump wins, you know, it would have to be, you know, likely four years later. If he loses, you know, it can go forward in 2025. Um, but um, I think in the New York case, um, they so contorted the law that um, uh, I don't see, I'm not sure a conviction survives. Defendants are rare to waive a jury. In this particular case, assuming it gets that far, that seems to be something that at least should be explored. What's your take on that? So I think that's a good consideration in this particular, in that particular case. I think, um, um, you know, it's very, it, you know, uh, if you look at the demographics uh, uh, in the jury pool and uh, uh, Trump's favorability ratings in the in the jury pool, um, I think that that's a worthwhile consideration. On the other hand, uh, if I'm a if I'm a um, criminal defense lawyer in that case, I have to weigh the issue of I might be able to get more defense information and more arguments and more witnesses uh, in in front of a jury than I'm, I might with a judge um, and make my make my complete record. Uh, but I would seriously consider waiving a jury trial in the in the New York case. Now, in Georgia, when the indictment came down, so many lawyers were struck because several lawyers were indicted. Right. And in this country, there is an encouragement, whether it's by the rules of ethics or otherwise, uh, for lawyers to put forth creative legal arguments. Is what happened in Georgia a problem? Is it an anomaly? Or or is it just kind of the stars lining up in a case that's high profile um, where several lawyers were indicted? And I know some have taken pleas and some haven't. How do you view that? 
So it, it's an anomaly, but it's an anomaly in the same way that Trump is an anomaly. Um, I mean, if you look at Trump, you know, he's had unethical lawyers most of his, you know, professional career, uh, starting with Roy Cohn, Michael Cohen, um, you know, some pretty obvious examples. Uh, I think, um, sadly, his power to, you know, corrupt people is, uh, is beat with, with, you know, power or promises of favoritism um, is you know, much stronger than you would wish it uh, would could possibly be in a country that uh, we were led to believe was, you know, based on principle and the rule of law. Um, but uh, I think the, um, you know, sadly, the the frivolous nature of the claims uh, and the clear-cut uh, effort to uh, violate uh, the laws, uh, obstruct a congressional proceeding, um, and take actions with fake electors, et cetera, et cetera, um, you know, the, the w- wide-ranging misconduct and much of it led by lawyers. Uh, so I, I think it's it's an anomaly, but, you know, we've seen, we've seen lawyers indicted in cases many times, you know, there, there are thousands of you know, doctor lawyer cases, conspiracies where lawyers and doctors team up to, you know, defraud insurance companies. And so, I mean, there are a lot of lawyers you know, walking around the uh, prison camps of the United States. Uh, uh, they shouldn't be a protected class, as my family reminds me every day. There's an issue now with one lawyer in particular, Rudy Giuliani, and his defamation case. Um, this is a case where it seems attorney-client privilege assuming it's not defeated by one of the exceptions that seemingly it will be defeated by, uh, will be threatened should these proceedings go further. He was already found liable. Now there seems to be another version of that lawsuit coming forward based on other statements that he's made. How do you view that case turning around? So, um, So on the defamation case, I don't think that the uh, attorney-client privilege intrudes. Um, I mean, it didn't. It was not a consequential factor in the uh, initial trial, um, um, in large part because Giuliani didn't provide any discovery. <laughs> you know, they uh, uh, issued jump judgment against him. It was really only about damages. Um, and then he had the misstep of, you know, at the end of the first day of trial of, you know, going in front of the cameras and saying that everything he'd said previously was true, which may earn him, you know, yet another um, defamation charge. So I think uh, in that aspect, probably doesn't probably doesn't um, come come to uh, uh, come to a judgment uh, in terms of the lawyer lawyer client privilege, but certainly in the uh, Jack Smith cases. You know, the, the uh, crime fraud exception has been front and center. Um, you know, take the Florida case where, you know, um, uh, Evan Corcoran was directed by Trump to provide an affidavit or arrange an affidavit, um, which he did uh, based on Trump's assurance that uh, there were no responsive documents, even though he's on film with uh, his co-defendant uh, or his co-defendants are on film um, moving boxes and uh orchestrating, uh, you know, the obstruction. So I think the, um, I think the, uh, issues there, uh, are highly unique. Um, you know, the, uh, the issues in the constitutional cases, I call it the January 6th case, um, are even more complex when it comes to attorney relationships, um, both in the 
Jack Smith context and certainly in the uh, Fannie Willis context. Um, but, um, you know, in, I mean, in the Fannie Willis case, you know, two of those lawyers have already pled guilty. Um, uh, so that gives, that gives her a leg up in terms of demonstrating, you know, crime fraud. The real interesting question as it relates to kind of all these cases, it seems, is that as we get further into this year, right, as the trial judges feel a need to push these cases to trial, we may end up with a possibility that a trial is ongoing or at least going to take place in the near future. And the candidate is either running in the general election or something of that sort. How do you anticipate the law sorting out what is not only unique, but will likely never happen again? Um, what do you think will happen with that general kind of scenario? I think in the, for the most part that it's important that the appellate courts you know, hold the line on the no man is above the law principle uh, in our country. Uh, I think, uh, um, you know, if, if if Jeffrey Dahmer had gone to trial and, you know, filed to run for president, uh, you know, would they have delayed his trial? No. Uh, you know, uh, the the um, the Trump defenses, uh, you know, that he can hide, he can hide uh, and avoid trial merely because he's running for president. I don't think have any basis in in the in the law uh, certainly not in the constitution there is a justice department policy of course um that you don't you try not to you know crack the 90-day window um i think jack smith's trying you know desperately and correctly to you know get done before that uh, i think the likelihood is that you know the jack smith case you know does go to trial uh, and does go to trial before the 90-day window and that trump would be likely convicted before the 90-day window, although, you know, that's probably 65-35 at this stage of the game. I know a lot of people say it's 50-50. 50-50 is, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's guessing. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, 65-35, I think there's a good chance that this case gets a trial. Um, you know, I don't think the D.C. Circuit's going to have any difficulty, uh, and I should disclose I'm on an amicus brief uh, countering the um, uh, immunity arguments uh, that Trump made. But uh, I don't think the D.C. Circuit is going to have any difficulty finding that Trump has no criminal immunity, that there is no such thing. And they're not going to find uh, uh, for him on double jeopardy because, oh, I know, actually, you have to have been in jeopardy to have double jeopardy. And he wasn't uh, in, in the impeachment process. So but I, I think it's in, I think it's essential that the courts move expeditiously. They're capable of doing it. Uh, they seem to be taking it seriously. I don't think, you know, the the short delay that the Supreme Court has introduced by, you know, saying, well, why don't we wait two weeks until the D.C. Circuit hears this? Um, you know, I don't think that actually is the victory that Trump thinks it is. Um, and I think they had that it, it could provide them the option of, you know, not having to consider it at all, depending on the uh, force and effect of the of the D.C. opinion, D.C. Circuit opinion. So many folks are saying that all these indictments are doing or is helping him politically, right? Boosting his popularity. Obviously, look, we would like prosecutors not to take that kind of thing into consideration. Do you view that as a problem? Well, I view them taking that into consideration as a problem. Um, and, you know, I, I think it just elevates him as a bully if he's able to, you know, get away with that argument. Um, I think the... The you know justice 
was designed to be blind. Um, and the Justice Department should be the Justice Department, not the, you know, how will this look department? Um, I think the, uh, you know, the likelihood of Trump, you know, going to jail in advance, if, if he won the election, the likelihood of him going to, going to jail in advance of that is nil. Um, if he wins the election, he can have uh, both of the Jack Smith cases dismissed uh, by somebody at the Justice Department appointed by him. Um, you know, this talk about this, this three year talk about him, you know, pardoning himself is sort of a silly uh, tangent because he doesn't have to resort to that. Uh, he'll be able to have it dismissed. Um, and then you have the two state cases, which if they haven't gotten to trial, nobody knows. There is no law um, or or even policy um, on the issue of can a president uh, be criminally tried in a state uh, for state crimes uh, while he's a sitting president. The Justice Department position is he can't be tried for a criminal, uh, a criminal case in a criminal case by the Justice Department during the time he serves because of the importance of the position. But that's just a policy. That's not the law. Uh, and I think people, you know, forget that. Uh, but um, the likelihood is, you know, they'll either say he can be tried or he can't be tried or he can be tried only after he serves his term or is impeached. What will come of Trump's removal from the Colorado main ballot? Um, so that's an interesting case. So I was once an advocate during the January 6th proceedings of Congress you know, going farther and, you know, making the findings, um, you know, required by, uh, arguably required by Section 3 of uh, the 14th Amendment, you know, to to find that he, uh, you know, was guilty of insurrection and should be disqualified. But they didn't go that route. They did. They, that was one of their recommendations to Congress. But Pelosi wanted to keep Trump around for the election um, and basically killed any chance to uh, to have that uh, exit ramp, which I think is, you know, there's a lot of politics going on on both sides here. Uh, but, um, you know, I don't think there's any doubt uh, that the the Supreme Court will uh, find in uh, Trump's favor, sadly, on the Article uh, 3 issue, um, both as a matter, well, primarily, I think they're likely to go 8-1 or 7-2 uh, at the most um, against him, against uh, the government on the issue of, against the Colorado and Maine governments, on the issue that uh, Article 3 doesn't apply to the president or the vice president, neither of whom are mentioned um, in Article 3. Um, and and it's certainly the due process issue is one that, um, uh, you know, scholarship and uh, case law would suggest uh, does not favor either state. I want to talk about free speech a bit. Right. Is there a First Amendment defense to the January 6th allegations? No. The So it's interesting. Trump has admitted, actually, in many of his um, speeches, well, not in many speeches, in, in many of the proceedings, uh, at least two of the proceedings, that he was acting as a candidate. Um, you know, so it's, it's, so then you're into political speech. And, you know, political speech you know, gets weighed a little differently. It gets, you know, intense protections. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't author as, as Nadine, I know, uh, Nadine Strassen, who you've interviewed previously and former head of the ACLU has 
always said that you know you you know if there's if there's an emergency if there's a threat you know that you know free speech gets stopped at that door and uh once people get started getting shot uh and dying um on capitol hill and you sit in your office for three hours watching tv and send out a tweet about you know you know, uh, denigrating Mike Pence, um, you know, I think that there's a compelling argument that, you know, there's no First Amendment protection for that. Are there any viable First Amendment arguments in connection with the gag orders? Oh, sure. Actually, there are. Uh, I think, and I think the courts have, well, I think the district court <laughs> uh, in D.C. certainly uh, rendered a very uh, principled uh, um opinion trying to draw the draw the lines as narrowly as uh, she felt were in the interest of uh, justice the dc circuit refined it you know only slightly frankly uh you know it's yeah. uh, the uh, some of the press think they really scaled it back but they really didn't um you know they they you know they they expanded it to allow him to complain and whine about um, jack smith but beyond that nothing consequential so yes, I mean, and the, and, and the gag order is designed for a very important, you know, uh, principle in American law, which is you know not contaminating the jury pool or allowing the intimidation of witnesses. So you know, in order to uphold principle, uh, the gag orders are both appropriate and guided by the uh, First Amendment in terms of the breadth of their application. But now we have a relatively narrow order that I'm sure Judge Chuckin will enforce effectively. Every lawyer. Who represents a client under indictment or investigation worth his salt will tell his client to not talk to anybody let alone the press assuming that's a possibility in this case there are so many extrajudicial statements that have already been made it doesn't seem like that is anywhere near a possibility for his lawyers to do i am assuming they know that how do you think that'll impact these cases going forward or will he somehow adjust his conduct moving forward as these cases get closer to trials you know, that's, I, so that's a complicated question on an ethical level. Um, you know, just because you know he's not going to take your advice doesn't mean you should withhold it. Right. Um, and I think, um, you know, hopefully somebody will get his attention um, and <laughs> tell him, you know, to stop talking. And if you're going to talk, stop lying um, because you're just digging, you're just digging a hole. Um, he won't listen, uh, but they're obligated to tell him. Now, um, you know, Trump's, you know, cross-examination, you know, with statement, if he ever testified, you know, with statements that he'd previously made, you know, I mean, it would be devastating. Um, you know, I don't think he can take the stand. Um, I think, I think he knows enough about the law at this stage of the game that, you know, he recognizes he can't take the stand um, in the, in the criminal cases. Um, but, you know, should he, you know, cross the Rubicon there, he'll get eviscerated. The Fifth Amendment point is an interesting one, right? Because in his cases, forget about the criminal cases, there have been so many civil cases that he's been involved in, some of which, many of which he's been deposed in, he's given testimony in courtrooms in. How muddy is that Fifth Amendment question now? Obviously, as everybody knows, you're not entitled to the same protections in the civil case as you are in a criminal case. What happens moving forward? Are those Fifth Amendment protections at least in practice, certainly not in theory, but in practice, gone. So, 
let's start with you know rule 403 uh federal rule evidence 403 you know um and the hearsay exceptions trump has made a lot of admissions against his own interests you know that those those comments will walk in okay and not, not a fifth amendment issue but those comments will walk in on the other hand the you know the government unlike in the civil cases the government cannot in a criminal case call the defendant uh so the so the effort you know the, the issue of the fifth amendment is not as applicable in the criminal cases unless he attempts to testify and refuses to answer you know certain questions um <clears throat> but if he attempts to testify and he answers some questions but not others you know the law is you know not crystal clear but pretty clear that that's a waiver yeah i want to finish up by talking a bit about cameras in the courtroom obviously in federal cases that's not allowed in the state cases there are varying opinions as to whether or not cameras will be uh, permitted here would having cameras in the courtroom be a good idea in this case or in these cases i suppose no um you know my experience is um um you know, as a prosecutor, as a you know former prosecutor, and as a criminal defense lawyer, that once you put cameras anywhere, people perform. Uh, all you have to do, I mean, the the biggest argument, the the easiest argument against cameras in the courtroom is Judge Ito. From the from the OJ case, um, you know that was a circus because it was on TV, um, and what happens is. Everybody feels like they have to pontificate. Uh, they have to uh, bloviate. Uh, and it, it'll, it'll extend the trial. It'll tax the judge's patience. Um, and, you know, it doesn't well serve justice because uh, you've got a jury there. You know, you're taxing them. They're there as a public service. Um, you know, and I've always thought the most, uh, the best justice is expeditious justice. And, you know, the, the delays that uh, a camera uh, introduced into a case, I think, are substantial. And I also think um, the ability of, you know, witnesses is uh, to testify uh, fully uh, is hampered because these are not, you know, experienced actors or performers like like lawyers uh, can be or like, you know, a, a, a politician can be. Um, you know, these are simple people coming forward because, you know, they are fulfilling their civic duty, um, or in many cases, in this case, or in these cases, will be honoring plea agreements. Uh, so I, I am not a fan of uh, cameras in the courtroom. I think one day that, you know, uh, given the erosion of standards in the country, that it's likely that that'll, that'll happen. Um, I hope uh, before it does that there's some effort to... Um, uh, you know, deal with the you know, objections that I've just raised. Generally speaking, where do you see these cases going in the next year or so? So I see um, if, you know, if, if I had a crystal ball and I had to make a prediction right now, I see the January 6th case going to trial before the election and only the January 6th case going to trial before the election. Uh, I think it could start in as early as May, but certainly in June. Um, I don't think it takes that long. Um, you know, the reality is the evidence is very straightforward. Uh, and, you know, Trump is scrambling, you know, trying to introduce, you know, Russian interference and you know, uh, a host of other things, but nobody's trying to defend his conduct. Uh, he doesn't have any witnesses who can defend his conduct because they're all testifying 
about what he did. Uh, and the cross-examinations, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, they will demonstrate the fallibility of each witness and the fact that they accommodated Trump. But, you know, nobody's going to nobody's going to claim they weren't acting at his admonition. Uh, so I think that uh, that case could go very quickly, you know, six weeks, perhaps. I think I think Jack Smith has said six to eight weeks. You know, so uh, that's that's a possibility. But I think that case is over by you know the end of August. And at that point, um, he's convicted. But if he again, as I say, if he wins, you know, and he is um, ensconced in the Oval Office, he can have the cases dismissed by the by his Justice Department. Well, Mr. Cobb, I appreciate your time and your insight. Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Dimitri. Nice to be on.